0: If you are wondering uh, where we're at in this series, the Against the Culture for the Culture series, we covered abortion for a few weeks. We covered a biblical response to the transgender movement for a few weeks. We then covered LGBT issues more broadly for a number of weeks after that. And now we are moving into our kind of final large section of this series, and so it's plan is it will be at least two months on this topic. So this, this will be for, it's almost like a mini-series within the larger series. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be on, I and mean, there's a lot of names for this kind of thing. Uh, it's going to be on uh, critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, wokeness, identity politics, all these terms that we hear almost incessantly on social media and online and on the news in the last several years. The, these things did not come out of nowhere. Uh, So we want to spend some weeks tracing a little bit of their origins in terms of, you know how it works, you have these highfalutin sort of philosophers and people who write these academic books that almost no one reads, but professors read them, and it gets into the academia, and then it gets from the academia into the professorship and into the classroom and the college campus, and then it eventually gets into the high school and middle school and elementary school uh, because it comes down, kind of a trickle-down effect from up above. And so even if we've never read some of the thinkers behind these views, we imbibe these views every time we scroll through Twitter, every time we're on Instagram, every time we're online reading any kind of news story. It's, it's ever-present like a fish in water. We're always running into and bumping into uh, these kinds of things. So, it's a huge subject. There are all kinds of things that we need to talk about, and we plan to just go through a whole bunch of the things over the, over the following uh, number of weeks. Greg, could you open us in prayer? We, we need prayer as we talk about yes, all these things, and then we will get more yeah. specific about
1: what we're gonna deal with. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, for the opportunity to uh, learn Your Word better uh, more than anything, but also, Lord, how to engage, um, understand, and refute these ideologies that are in the world around us that are trying to force their way into the church. Lord, uh, We pray for a lot of wisdom, God we pray for clarity, we pray for boldness, Uh, we pray for humility, Um, God in everything we need to handle this social justice topic and issue, Lord, as faithfully as we can, uh, Lord, because at the end of the day we want to be faithful to your word and what it says uh, before we are faithful to anything else. So, Lord, be with us, be with uh, Fred and Mark and myself as we, Lord, try to to make sense of all of this in a way that's beneficial for our church and, Lord, for for everyone. Lord, I pray that we'd walk away with this, from this with a better grasp of what we're facing, how dangerous it is, and how to respond to it from a biblical perspective. So, Father, we just commit this whole next uh, two months or or so to you, um, we pray that Christ would be honored and magnified, and that we would be built up in the truth, uh, better able to know you, love you, and obey you in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Amen. <clears throat> so, as be, before we get into the critical theory and all of those issues, uh, wokeness and whatnot, I, I want to just be very clear from the outset what we're not saying. Uh, when we talk about these things and this list is adapted from owen strand owen strand has written a book called christianity and wokeness and he's also done a series of lectures on the same topic which are on youtube free uh, and available for anyone who would like to watch Uh, owen strand is a guy i really respect on these things think he's got a lot of good things to offer so uh i kind of want to begin maybe with a little bit something closer to a a story here if you look at the screen i don't know if you'll be able to see this or not let me full screen this so this is a uh, this is, you know, it's gonna be hard to see what we're looking at, but if you look up here at this little, uh, this little uh, red little dot up in this area up at the top of the screen, um, this is a friend of mine's house that I grew up going to all the time in uh, elementary, middle school, even high school. Uh, a wonderful Christian family from Brazil, a missionary family, godly family. Have a, they've got a whole bunch of kids and tons of grandkids, like tons of grandkids, and wonderful people, uh, absolutely wonderful people. I, I grew up here, my brother Scott used to roast coffee on their property for a coffee company that they owned for about 10 years. I don't know if you knew this, but Scott worked there for 10 years uh, roasting coffee back uh, more than a decade ago. Well, one day I, I was there and I got on a bike, I still remember this, <clears throat> I rode down Ridgeway Road, this is not that far from North Oak High School and whatnot, Snows Mill Road, and all that stuff there. And I, I rode down this road on a bike, was, I think it's less than a mile. I got up here, I turned left on the Morris Ford Road, and I rode down to the Morris Ford Bridge. And I actually know the family that lives right here in this house as well. I went to school with a kid who went to, whose house is right here. You can see the pool in their backyard and everything. But this right here, this spot is uh, Morris Ford Bridge. This is where the last major lynching happened in American United States history, 1946, in Papa Fred's lifetime. In Papa Fred's lifetime, one of the most like truly awful things. If you go read the story about what happened, I won't recount all the details, but you have uh, a couple of African-Americans, two couples, and one of them, the girl, was maybe 19 or 20 years old. She was apparently seven months pregnant, And because of a dispute that had happened previously, uh, a number of white men, perhaps 12 to 17 white men, all fully armed, uh, knew where this couple would be driving that day. And they stopped them on what was then a dirt road. In real life, it probably actually happened not on the bridge, but a little bit to the side on a dirt road. But they they stopped them, they got them out of the car, and they apparently tied the two couples to a tree, including the pregnant woman, and they shot them something like 60 some odd times. Hmm. And killing the woman, her unborn child, killing both couples. and. Uh, The president addressed it at the time. The FBI was involved in this study. They they never figured out who the criminals were who did this. No one was, I don't think, ever caught officially uh, with with this crime. And uh, they even redid some, like, cold case stuff more recently, and they were still not able to figure out all that had happened at that time. Now, I grew up right down the road. I mean, hanging out with friends right down the road. The relatives and those related to those who committed this crime, no doubt some of them may have still lived in the area, I don't know. I mean, this is 1946, at least their kids or grandchildren could have lived in the area. And uh, th- this, particular, uh, this particular thing happened in our actual backyard. So what, what, just to st- I'm starting with a personal thing here just to say, we are not for one second in what we're gonna talk about, because we're gonna criticize critical race theory to the extreme. We, 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 we think it is a very horrible and damaging ideology. But we are in no way minimizing real moral evil in, re- in regards to race in our country's past uh, we 're not minimizing that. so we' are aware of the West African slave trade and that the Bible condemns stealing someone and selling them into slavery in both testaments and in Exodus 21, it is the death penalty to steal someone and sell them into slavery. <clears throat> it's the death penalty and in first Timothy chapter one in fact Ironically, it's right next to the condemnation of homosexuality. In 1 Timothy 1.9, the the word right before that is enslavers, which refers to someone who steals someone and sells them into slavery. So the the Bible from beginning to end condemns what what was the West African slave trade categorically. And so we believe that that is a great moral evil. Jim Crow laws after the Civil War that were continuing segregation in our nation's history were absolutely wicked and immoral and wrong. Uh, in no way is what we're saying uh, not, not uh, grieving and, and aware of the fact that we have a lot of things to be ashamed of in our nation's history. Any comments on that idea?
1: I mean, I, I totally agree. Like, when we critique stuff like critical race theory and social justice, oftentimes it can… It, the assumption is, well, you don't believe racism is real, you don't believe it's happened, it's almost like you're ignoring the past. Um, and we're also not saying that there's not real instances of racism in society today. There are. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm from a small town. When I was pastoring in that small town, um, I heard from people in the church I pastored and others say things about black people that were absolutely appalling. Um, and it just flowed like it was any everyday conversation. Um, so we're not minimizing that. But what we are doing is separating what we're talking about from actual racism because as we're going to see, the charge from folks who have imbibed CRT, social justice narratives, is that they see racism where it doesn't exist. And they, they turn people who are not racist into racists um, on the basis of absolute fiction. Um, they create categories um, and they, they cause division. Um, and they basically, if you buy into that, you have to reinterpret scripture in a way that's foreign to the text itself. And so we need to make that distinction because there is real racism. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's, it's awful and we reject it, we oppose it. Um, but what CRT is dealing with is not racism. Okay, that's what we're going to have to see. It, it's creating stuff out of thin air um, because of the worldview, and all this is just by way of introduction. We're going to look a lot deeper into this, um, but it creates out of thin air because of a worldview that assumes certain things about you and about people and about skin color, um, assumptions that are unfounded, unwarranted, um, and definitely out of step with Scripture.
2: I... Um, uh Prep for today, I was reading some quotes from, this is from Cornelius Fantil, uh one of my favorite apologists, and said, Christ came to bring peace, be, to be sure, but the peace that he came to bring must be built upon the complete destruction of the power of darkness. Um, that destruction, of course, will happen ultimately when Christ comes again. But in the meantime, there, there's warfare going on, and that's what we're addressing uh, there's the power of darkness and the power of light there's no compromise I think and I think everyone in this room probably would agree with that you can't compromise with evil you can't uh, compromise with darkness uh, Augustine talked about the city of light and the city of man they just don't can't coexist we can't coexist with the gospel and and uh, the power of darkness it just won't work so yes there's been abuse historically there's been abuse um in his fault line book i i was interested when he first uh of course his lineage is from africa but he'd never been there before and so when he first gets to africa he finds out from his own personal investigation that uh yes slavery did take place but uh, certain tribes in africa was selling other tribes into slavery, for purposes of slavery. So that didn't make it right uh, or anything like that. But he, he that was a new uh, revelation to him. So you know, there's examples we could go on and on. Um, I, you mentioned I was alive in in, in 46 because I was born in 44. But uh, I'd say maybe 20 years ago. I don't know. I was headed up to the mountains with my kids, and stopped for Forsyth County to. to for an ATM use, and the Klan was having an open-air rally with sheets and all. But, that, you know, I'd never witnessed that before, even though I'm from the South, so.
0: If you will if turn your Bible to James chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you a sort of a strange illustration. I, I read this. I looked it up on scientificamerican.com. Uh, I won't go into the detail because this will make you lose your appetite for probably a couple days if I went into the detail here. But they were talking about, this is the headline, zombie creatures. What happens when animals are possessed by parasitic puppet masters? Wow, that's an interesting headline. Okay, and then it says this, you don't want to think too long about this, okay? From fungi to flies, some parasitic species have figured out how to control their host's behavior uh, to get what they need. See what happens when bugs go really bad. Like, what? And then here's part of the article says… Although not undead in the strictest sci-fi definition of zombie, these captive creatures nonetheless behave as if possessed by a force from beyond. That force, however, is often controlling them from the inside, making the unfortunate hosts do deadly things." And it talks uh, about—well, I won't go into all the details, uh, but it talks about some pretty gross things about what parasites do. Now, a parasite goes into the host, and the parasite, in these certain instances, are able to control the behavior of the host and eventually kill the host. All the while, uh, people from the outside don't even realize that, that this, why is this snail acting the way it's acting right now? Well, it's because it has a parasite that's actually controlling the snail from within. Now, that illustration is a, is a little bit of a helpful insight into what critical race theory is and what intersectionality is. What's happened is this. We have the same vocabulary in some forms, well, we share some of the same vocabulary, but we have a different dictionary. And what's happened is people have crept in with their ideology into our terms, like a parasite. And they enter into biblical terms like justice. And what they do is, like a parasite, they eat the definition out from the inside, and they give it a completely new meaning, a completely new uh, meaning to the words like diversity, or equity, or inclusion, or justice, or white supremacy, or even the word racism. These words have been taken over by a false belief system, and these words have been completely like a parasite redefined from the inside and now they're behaving in ways that the words were not intended to behave. They're they're doing things that the words were not originally defined to do. And so what ends up happening is no one wants to be called any of these words, you know, you don't want to be called a racist or a white supremacist, but the words have been redefined in a way to call things that are not truly white supremacy, white supremacy. And things that are not actually racist are being labeled racist. And so the, the terms are so powerful, no one wants to ever be labeled by those. We, we don't want to be put in the same category as these white-headed clownsmen, right? The clansmen, the, the these crazy people. We don't want to be put in that category. And so to avoid that, we will do everything we possibly can to, to avoid uh, stepping where we're not supposed to step by the new definitions. You understand kind of what's, I mean, I hope that makes sense for what's going on in the world uh, around us today. So James chapter 2 is going to give us, I think, a helpful way to understand uh, maybe a better definition for racism. Greg, can you read the first five verses and talk to us a little bit about uh, favoritism?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. All right, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Oh, uh, we we're gonna go further in James than this, right? Yeah, we can go further. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna read a little bit further. Um, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, are not the rich, yeah, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And I'm going to stop there because he goes on to talk about you can be, you know, you can keep nine of the Ten Commandments, for instance, but if you break one, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Um, so it's not enough to say, well, in this area, in this area, man, I'm spotless, so that kind of gives me cover for this other area where I don't keep it as well. No, James is like, you break it in one point, you're guilty. Um, but his specific focus is partiality, showing favoritism to one person over another um, merely on external um, external things, external for external reasons, nothing substantive like, You know, one is verifiably wicked or righteous. One is you know um, anything like that. This is simply somebody's rich; they're dressed nice, so we're going to treat them well. This other person, they're poor; they're not dressed nice. Uh, Maybe they don't smell as good, so we're we're going to treat them less than we treat the rich man. He's saying that's partiality, that's that's favoritism, and that's evil. Why? Because both are made in the image of God. We don't base how we treat people based On how they look I mean that that's uh, I think you can already see where that principle is gonna go the external is not the basis for how we treat people how well dressed they are unwell dressed they are how well groomed they are um, whether they have facial hair or not whatever short tall big small like we do not base how we treat people on those external things because no matter what you look like no matter where you come from how rich or poor you are you are made in the image of God Every single human being is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated accordingly. And so James is pointing out to this church, it's like brothers, you are not treating each other as fellow image bearers. You're elevating you're elevating some merely on the basis of the fact that they have more money and nicer clothing and you are devaluing others simply because they don't dress as nice and don't have as much money. And you're saying, here, we're going to show special favor. We're going to give you a great, nice, beautiful seat where everyone can see you. And to the poor man, look, stand over in the corner. Or even worse, why don't you sit down at my feet like a servant? And it's like in the church, because one of the things in the backdrop of what James is talking about is our unity in Christ. He talks about that, uh, if we were to keep reading on, um, But is our unity in Christ, meaning at the, you've heard this before, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning when we come to Jesus, we all have an equal status. We are equally heirs of all that God has promised Christ. We're all going to share in that together. And nobody comes and says, hey, I'm further up in God's sight because of, I look like this, I make this much money, I dress like this, you don't. Um, there's none of that. We're all equal in Christ, which is why in the church, one more (laughs) thing, um, in the church, you can have people from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of social statuses, and they can sit at the same table and have real engaging, lifelong fellowship because of what they have in Christ. Okay. They weren't doing that.
0: And just, just let me add a little story. So I believe it was in John Piper's church in Greenville, South Carolina. This is a little over 50 years ago. I think it was at his wedding. I have to go back and double check. I think it was his wedding. Uh, it was some major event like that. I think it was his, his own wedding. And uh, there was an African-American lady who knew the family well, and she was going to come to the wedding. And if I remember correctly, she entered the church, and the, 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 the kind of procedure was, if you're African-American, you've got to sit up in the balcony just because of your skin color. That's exactly what James is condemning, obviously, in this text, that kind of thing. Partiality based on externals. And John Piper's mother grabbed, I think this is how the story went, she grabbed the lady and said, no, you're sitting down here with us. Like, don't listen to what anyone says. You're gonna sit down here on the ground floor with our family, like, come with us into the room. That, that is objective racism. That, that, that is the kind of mm-hmm. ethnic partiality that is that James would be clearly condemning here. And that's what we are 100% in agreement that, that is, there's no place for that in the church of God. Uh, <laughs> You you reading scripture? I'm I'm looking
2: at Micah uh, six six. Uh, this is God uh, indicting the people uh, and and explaining what he requires. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams? Will ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You know, he says other places in Isaiah, the cattle, I don't want your sacrifices. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. So don't give me your sacrifices, give me your heart. Give me your repentance.
0: give me your contrition, So, So, again, as, uh, as we're getting into things here, just to be very clear, uh, again, barring this from Owen Strand, wokeness uh, is not wanting racial harmony, recognizing massive failings in American and Western history, uh, being troubled by the complicity of past professing Christians and real racism, obviously we should be troubled by that, uh, adopting children from a different region or the different skin color, uh, interracial marriage, uh, doing what you can to build bonds with people different from you. This is not CRT, okay? This is not wokeness. This is, this is just normal, good stuff. This is, this is not what we're opposed to in any way. Uh, doing what you can to build bonds with people different from you, enjoying other cultures, uh, knowing Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew, not a white uh, American, uh, wanting greater justice in a sinful world working to be more thoughtful with one's language regarding racial and ethnic differences. Now, you need to be careful what you do with language today, but but obviously that's, that's, that's right as long as the words are defined correctly. And finally, grieving the unjust death of human beings made in God's image like the Morse Ford lynching and other things like that. So you don't have to be woke to say, yeah, okay, this makes sense. That's not, that's not the problem. When we move into wokeness, we're moving to something that is actually uh, not what it seems. And let me just let me just throw on the screen here, you've all, you all see this kind of stuff. If you work anywhere, uh, this stuff comes up. You've got uh, DEI training. We plan to have a day where we talk about this in more detail in the future. But for right now, just a quick overview. Uh, you guys hear these words, right, all the time? So you've got diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, uh, I mean, who could be against that kind of stuff? It just sounds great, doesn't it? It just warms your heart. You say, what, what could possibly be wrong with this? Well, remember the parasite. The parasite takes what seems like good words at times and they go inside and they gut the term and they redefine the word. And so now the good word now means something very different from what it once meant or what we used to think that it meant. And so, uh, just to, uh, I'm going to give you another illustration here with those terms. You, you, this is something that came out from a paper, a scholarly paper in 2005. And you may have heard this. This is called the Mott and Bailey. Now, Back in the olden days, thousand years ago or so, uh, you would have your you would have your bailey, which is this kind of uh, this kind of uh, gated area out here where you could work. You'd have your home, you'd have your community. You might work your farmland, and you'd have some water maybe around the outskirts of your town. But your your town, because it calls it the palisade here, this little gate was not very easily defensible. So if some troops come up. That, that gate might work for a little while, but if an army comes, you're in trouble. So, if you, what you need to do is you need to get everybody from all their homes to leave your homes and retreat and go up the drawbridge across the little moat, kind of thing, and get up into uh, the mot up at the top of the hill. There, it's kind of like a little castle up on a, fortif- a fortified place. And usually, the mot was not made of wood. It was you can see these still to this day that were made of stone. You know, like in in, in, in chess, the little uh, castle-looking piece. Uh, they th- th- look kind of like that. You have this little this little uh, tower, and it has little slotted windows, like you know where they could shoot arrows out of, and they even had little things in some of these where you could pour molten, like lead or whatever it was, these boiling oil, they'd pour down these things to destroy their enemies, and they'd fire down on them, and, and it was almost impregnable. There was almost no way you could get into the mot. The mot was that safe and secure location up high, fortified, and once the army was tired of staying there, they would leave, and everybody comes out of the mot, they come down the hill, and they go back to the bailey, which is where they live, right? You got, you got how that works? Now, A paper from 2005 argues that postmodernism and all these theories that you hear about, you've got critical queer theory, you've got all all these different things. What, what What these projects are basically doing is a grand scale Mott and Bailey attempt. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I think this is actually a brilliant illustration. See if it makes sense to you? So what they do is they take terms that almost no one can disagree with. Racism is bad, duh. White supremacy is bad, yes diversity can be a good thing yes inclusion can be a good thing yes equity sounds like a good thing yes okay so those terms are their safe words those are their mots. those are their castles their fortifications where they if you call them on something they can retreat to their safe word their mot and they can go all we're trying to do is show people that the world has got these other people in it and we need to be aware of that all we're trying to do is diversity training are you against diversity are you a white supremacist? Are you a racist? Is that why you're opposed to our diversity, equity, inclusion journey? say so what they do is, when they get called on something, they retreat to the castle, to the motte, their little tiny thing that's easy to defend, which is what the terms have generally meant, right? And who's going to disagree that racism is bad, that white supremacy is bad? And then when we're not really paying attention, they come out of their mot and they descend into their bailey. And what they do is they've actually redefined these terms and they have a very radical agenda and they're trying, no joke, to indoctrinate everyone in our culture with crazy beliefs about what these things might be. And they start teaching them at schools. I mean, I'm, there, there are all kinds of government schools around here that, that, that are, that are going to be t- all over our country. You can hear about the courses and curriculum. And then what happens is they get called on it right? They have a grassroots response. The parents don't like it. And you've seen these videos online. These are not even often Christians. They're just people. There's parents. They go, how dare you teach this stuff? I mean, there's really gross sexual stuff in this third grade book in the library. It's got, it, it explains homosexual behavior in detail, naming everything. And it's from a third grader in a library. What's wrong with you people? And you know what happens? Everyone retreats from the Bailey back to the Mott. Oh, no, no, no. All we're, we're just here. Just to, we want to be inclusive. Surely you don't want to exclude people just because of how they are. surely, okay, so they retreat to their safe safe spot, right? And they can defend themselves because these terms all sound really reasonable. And then again, when we're not looking, they come back to the Bailey and they start promulgating a very false ideology. Does this sound familiar? So there's a safe place of retreat. We're just here to help people know that there's different people out there. We want to be accepting. And then as soon as you're not looking, they come back out and they're actually promulgating a belief system that is itself so far from Christianity, it's hard to even explain. Some thoughts on how the Mont and Bailey routine has been, has been happening? I've got a question. Um, do
2: you think, and I'm asking the audience as well, do you think that some of this was a product of the, the 60s, the affirmative action, uh, the, some of the action by the Supreme Court and, and whatever over racial issues? MLK and that type of thing. So that, that you know, that there were laws passed. Uh, I, I entered the business world about this time in the 60s, late 60s. And, and of course, there were. Uh, I first entered the, the, the business world with something like this, not the Mott Bailey model, but the diversity, and that's a good thing,
0: you know. And it, let, let me jump in right there, because th- this, I think, gets at, the, gets at a fundamental part. We are all for ethnic diversity. No, no problem with ethnic diversity. Here, here's, here's what they're doing though with those words, uh, the words uh, diver- diversity, equity, inclusion. Now, now just think about this for a second. Here, here is the real game plan. If you want your ideology to win, you have to be able to do three things. Number one, you have gotta have a goal of where this ideology is heading. You gotta have a goal. Number two, you've got to be able to get rid of anyone who doesn't agree with, anyone who doesn't agree with the ideology from the public space to cancel culture them, right? Get them out of here. So you've got to get rid of the people who don't agree with the ideology and you've got to only include people that agree with the ideology. Now, just stop for a second. When you actually look at the words diversity, equity, inclusion, okay? Diversity, Zach Petty was great on this. Zach Petty was, well, I probably shouldn't say too much detail (laughs) unless he gets in trouble, but Zach was asked about this question in, in a certain setting. And Zach said, he was asked if he believes in diversity, okay? And he said, I believe in diversity of thought, which... That's not as popular today, right? So, I believe in diversity of thought. I believe in different perspectives. That's not really smiled upon. Why? Because diversity is not really about having people of different ethnicities in the room. Here's what it's about. It's about having people of different ethnicities in the room who all agree with intersectionality, wokeness, and critical theory. In other words, when Vody Bakum, who's a black man from, uh, uh, who, who will talk all about his upbringing in South Central Los Angeles and all this stuff, Vody Bakum is a committed Christian, rejects critical race theory, he is not considered diversity because he doesn't agree with critical theory. He's not woke. So he is not, act- he's actually, people will say of Vodi, this is not a joke, they will say he's a black face with a white voice, which is actually a strangely racist thing to say about a black man. So who are you to say what a white or black voice is? Like who, 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 who gives you the authority to say that? So when Votie speaks biblical truth, people say he's, he's acting like a white person. So he doesn't count for diversity, although he has, eth- he has the ethnicity of African American, that does not count because he doesn't talk the way the ideology is you see? So diversity means everyone's welcome of every skin color and sexual orientation as long as they think like we do, as long as they have our ideology, right? So that, that's what diversity means. Uh, in, 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 inclusion really means that we got to have safe spaces. We can't let anything in the room that reminds someone that, of anything that might disagree with their perspective. So that means we got we to we get everything out of the way that might be in some way offensive, like Someone who believes the Bible, who doesn't believe that homosexuality is a good thing or whatever it might be, we got to get them out of here because the space is not truly inclusive until that has happened. And so really, these three words are a way of just saying that the ideology of, of critical theory has to be believed by everyone in the group. And if you don't believe it, you're you're gonna be removed in some with, form. Within those same narrow definitions. Right, within the redefined right, parasite yes. version of yep. these terms. That's an important point, I think. And
1: so I think going with what, what Fred was saying is initially diversity, like at least at some level, the intent was a good thing because oh yeah. it's like, you know, we have a lot of opportunity in this country. We need to make sure everybody has access to that as much as we can anyway. You can't guarantee it in every situation, but you know, with the racist policies that have been in place, it was hindering some. So, hey, let's get rid of those. Let's open it up. And so that's, you know, OK, doesn't matter what your skin color. If, if you're qualified, you get the job and you get paid well. You know, that's diversity. And so we latch onto a term like that and we're like, yes, we're all about that. And we get and, and rightfully we're, we're we support that, we promote it. And then, like Mark was saying, the parasite comes in. And it changes what they mean by diversity, and we're you know people of good intentions end up getting stuck. It's like a catch twenty mm-hmm. two. Honestly, like you either either way you're going to get in trouble no matter what you do um, because you you don't want to say you're against diversity, um, but then if you say well yeah I'm diverse then they're going to say then you have to mean it like we mean it, um, and it, it's really it's just an unfortunate situation. And the people who who come up with these kinds of things like. They, 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 they understand, as we're going to see, because we're going to talk about Marxism and stuff like that too, they relish in contradictions. Because especially in a culture like what the United States has had, which is there is definable right, definable wrong, definable good, definable evil, um, they relish contradictions because they know for the average person in that environment, it's going to basically stump them and kind of leave them at a loss for words and unable to do anything that's the goal they want people stunned they want people scratching their heads not knowing what to do they relish in the contradictions they know it's contradictory they know it is but they don't care because they have an agenda and they have a certain thing they want to put forward Um, and that's why it causes so much trouble why so many good intentioned people um, are just don't know what to do um, is because of that it's an intentional deception
2: do you think they have flourished and fostered because of the very freedoms that we enjoy in our society? The freedoms of speech, and of course now with social media, everyone has a freedom of speech across the network, across the computer world, cyber world. And that's given everybody a voice.
1: I would say they definitely use the freedoms to their own advantage. I mean, playing off the image of the parasite, what does a parasite do? It it uses the life of the, the host. host yeah,
2: exactly, um,
1: for its own advantage. And so they're going to use, to use that language, the life of the host system, um, nation, way of thinking that they're in. And they'll use that to get themselves where they want to. But by the time they're there, the very things they were using to get there, they're destroying or have destroyed. Um, and in our, and in, in our context, it's, hey, you know, you need to be tolerant of people who um, do believe differently than you. And you don't, you know, need to condemn everything that, that's, that's not exactly like what you believe. So, and, you know, people, well, we don't want to be intolerant. Um, and so once these folks get in power, though, what do they do? They're the most into- They're even more intolerant of people than they claim the people they were trying to get toleration from. Um, but yeah, that's what parasites do. They sap the life of the host um, because that's what parasites do.
0: So bringing this sort of into the evangelical world that we, that we live in, in America, j- just to give s- some examples, um, I-, I started noticing this was happening over the years, and it became more and more clear to me that, th- that these beliefs were creeping into otherwise trustworthy institutions and leaders Christian books. So here's an example. Um, in it started earlier than this, but when I really started seeing it was in the year 2018, and that that was the turn. That was a turning point for me where I realized something was going wrong, and I, did, I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong. But uh, so uh, the the Gospel Coalition, which we've all benefited from in, in various ways over the years. Uh, used to be my, one of my favorite websites on the entire internet. It's still very useful in many ways. But the Gospel Coalition uh, hosted a conference with the ERLC uh, called MLK50. Okay, this is 2018. Martin Luther King, 50th anniversary, I believe it was of his death. It was 50 years later. And so that, that was 2018. The ERLC is what? Uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, commit, commission. Uh, which yeah. Russell Moore at the time was the president. Yes, and of. that's the big thing of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and, and just, just We're going to throw some names out there. So uh, Russell Moore was, I was online, doing seminary online, but he was one of my, one of my professors for systematic theology. I had followed him for years. I would quoted him from the pulpit repeatedly. I used to really like Russell Moore. One time he tweeted back to me on Twitter. It was a highlight. Uh, he, he's, he's like, said thanks or something. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh man, Russell Moore. So I, 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 I really was a Russell Moore fan. He had been trained under Al Mohler for a number of years. And he was one of the new, sharp, young, guys. And I was so glad when he was first put on as president of the ERLC, I rejoiced. I thought this is a huge step forward for uh, for Southern Baptist life. This was a huge, like I was very positive about this. And then uh, as time went on, I became increasingly uncomfortable with things that Russell Moore was saying, but maybe one of the chief among these was, was the MLK 50 conference. And th- this conference was a conference where um, and again, we're not minimizing the, the, the common grace ways in which the Lord used MLK in our culture to do many very good and wonderful things. But uh, the, the conference, things were starting to be said about race that made me uncomfortable. So for instance, this is, this is back when I was a huge Matt Chandler fan or a bigger Matt Chandler fan. Uh, he, he, Matt Chandler gave a message and I thought from the moment I heard it, that, that was the worst message I've ever heard Matt Chandler give. That was my uh, takeaway. I talked to another friend of mine who said it was the best message Matt Chandler had ever given. I thought, something is changing. Why is it that the message I thought was his worst, someone else thought was his best? I thought, okay, something is going on here, the way that race was actually being addressed and the way it was being talked about. And uh, John Piper actually had the the, uh, audacity at the end of the conference, he spoke last, to question Martin Luther King's theology. Because Martin Luther King did not believe in the virgin birth, he didn't believe in the deity of Christ, and he didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If you didn't know that- He also questioned
1: his salvation. He said, We can't be sure about that. He says, I hope so. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he that's a hyper
0: question. Okay, right, right, King, right. Yeah, right yes. Well, m- Based on Martin Luther King's official teaching, he did not believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's just like objectively true. He wrote his. Thesis on the non-bodily resurrection of Jesus, and even sermons preached years later uh, in the 1959, he, he continues to say whether you believe in the bodily resurrection or not is not the point right now. The question is, do you believe he r- rose in some sense, like spiritually or whatever? So it, those it was it was a conference that just praised MLK to the hilt with almost no criticism, and then when Piper came along and, and criticized his theology, there was a huge backlash against mm-hmm. Piper at the time. So I was just thinking, what is going on? This is so strange the way race is being discussed. Something does not seem right. And then as the as the as time has gone on. It's become clear that the categories of critical race theory, which we'll try to clarify here as we go forward, were being adopted by these leading Christian authors and speakers. To where one of the speakers at the conference, Eric Mason, who's a guy I would have recommended his book on manhood ten years ago, was, Eric Mason's book on manhood is a book you should you should go read. It was well recommended. Eric Mason uh, speaks at the conference and he says. Uh, some things that are just like downright unsettling he writes the book A Woke Church mm-hmm. where he endorses the woke ideology in his title uh, and so uh, there was clearly some some ground was shifting around any any comments on the what was going on in in that time
1: and is um, continuing today ooh, okay um yeah it, it was one of those things like it it kind of the that conference the MLK 50 conference uh really seemed to start bringing it out the t4 the next t4g in the together for the gospel um, also did that um, with some of the things that were said there. And that's when it really started, like people started waking up and like trying to figure out what was going on. Um, but the problem was, is these things weren't being said by rank heretics outside no. the church who did not believe the Bible, who didn't believe these things. These were from people who would sign, would look at our confession of faith here at North Avenue and say, oh yeah, I agree with that. hmm And so that's where the confusion started coming. And again, by design, the the worldview fueling this is intended to cause confusion and disruption. Um, That's part of what it does. Um, So we see that even in the church, as we start hearing people like Russell Moore, Matt Chandler, um, Eric Mason, Thabidi Anyabwile, um, Ligon Duncan, um, and again, we're we're introducing this. We're gonna talk a lot more in depth. Um, saying things in in public, and you're like, how can you say that if you hold to the inerrancy, the infallibility, and sufficiency of this book? It's like, wh- where is this coming from? Um, and so, like, you know, I, through various people I knew, I started becoming aware of this. Uh, maybe just a little earlier than than 2018, seeing some of the signs because thinking about like liberation theology, um, reading some books where. Um, You know, Tim Keller, and we'll mention this one later too, is quoting a liberation theologian from Latin America um, in a favorable way in terms of how he understood things. Um, And so I started looking more and more, and I started seeing more and more people quoting people they shouldn't be quoting and quoting them favorably as though this is good biblical insight. And it it was just absolutely, it was troubling because I'm like, You you know like you know these things don't jive with scripture. These things don't line up with scripture. They they are contrary to scripture, and yet here they are saying them all the while. In one hand, you know, starting to 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 speak in this the the terminology of critical race theory, even if they wouldn't say that's what they're doing. So they're 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 trying to do a balancing act. And I'm like, how did they even get to that point? How did they even get there? They're saying, oh yeah, we're, we believe the Bible. We don't deny any essential doctrine. This is the word of God. And yet they're speaking ways, they're, they're using, like Mark said, they're using this terminology, but the way they're using it is not how the Bible uses it. And I, the only thing, I, like your illustration of the parasite I think is, is a really good one um, in terms of how that worked. They started listening to the wrong people. And they started believing, you may have heard this illustration, it's called you can eat the meat and spit out the bones. It means you take <laughs> you take what's good, you spit out what's bad from, you know, sociological theories and all this. When what they failed to realize is the whole thing is poison, the meat and the bones. So if you spit the bones out and still eat the meat, you're still getting poisoned. And that that's the only way I think I can understand it is they bought the lie that, well, you know, And and again, sounds good. All truth is God's truth. I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that statement. But again, parasitically, well, that means ungodly systems, even Marx and, you know, that way, the critical race theorists, like they, they can make legitimate points and observations about reality and about humanity and about sin and about. And once you start to do that, the poison of the meat, oh, I'm spitting out, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting rid of the bad stuff, but there's some good
0: stuff you've already introduced the poison in. And just, just to jump off of that, so to kind of get a little bit into what critical race theory is teaching, some of the basic things it's saying is this. Number one, uh, in, in our culture today, racism is everywhere present all the time. That there's no real getting away from it. Every white person by birth, whether they realize it or not, is a racist and a white supremacist because you benefit from a racist system within which uh, we are living right now. And uh, you, you can have book titles. I mean, th- book titles like this, okay? Th- th- these are real book titles. You have a book title like uh, Racism Without Racists. So the the idea here is that you may not have personal animosity towards someone of another skin color, but you are still a racist and a white supremacist and you need to divest of your whiteness. You need to get away, you need to repent of your whiteness, divest of your whiteness, get away from that because uh, you, your, your whiteness is part of this system of oppression that is, that is everywhere all the time, wired into every institution and every way of doing everything in our culture, and until you are awakened to that, you're woke, you wake up to the fact that racism is everywhere all the time, uh, you're in big trouble. And number two, minority groups cannot be racist. I remember, I learned this first from my wife when she was in college at UGA. I remember she she was talking about, she was being taught in class that uh, white people can be racist, but that minorities cannot be. And I thought that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. I like, they, they couldn't have really said that in class. She's like, no, they, that's really what they're teaching because racism is not simply prejudice based on ethnicity. It's prejudice plus plus power uh, that, that makes racism. So uh, a, a mi- minority group cannot be racist toward a majority group because of how power structures work. And I thought. That is not biblical. That is not a biblical way to think. So, so um, any, any belief system that says only one group of people can be racist, and they're racist all the time, and every other group is simply a victim of their racism and they can't actually be racist, I'm going, that, that's not right. Ethnic prejudice, which is a biblical term, racism is not a term in the Bible. Racism, the term is not in the Bible. Ethnic prejudice would be a biblical way of speaking, and ethnic prejudice can go any direction. Mm -hmm. A Samaritan can be prejudiced toward a Jew, and a Jew can be prejudiced toward a Samaritan. The whole story of the Good Samaritan is overcoming ethnic prejudice and showing love even though it doesn't make any sense in the world's eyes. Jesus is obviously saying ethnic prejudice is terrible, and you should love across ethnic divisions no matter what, because that's the loving and right thing to do. Of course, of course, of course. But anytime racism is only heading in one direction, you know something is going wrong here. Two, two, two fancy words, okay? These are kind of, one's made up and one's a real word, but I'll use both of them. So you, you may have heard of something with biographies. It's called hagiography, which means sometimes when people write a book about a, a former Christian, they, they Photoshop them as if they have no flaws and they make their holy, like just as if they, as if they walked on water, as if they were perfect, right? You, you sometimes read Christian biography, you're like, this has got to be exaggerated. That's hagiography based on the word for holy. It's making them more holy than they really were. I don't like hagiography. I don't, I don't think we should paint our saints as if they had no blemishes, like sometimes people do. But it, let's talk about just in American history. We may have had a problem of hagiography with the founding fathers, okay? In other words, growing up, you may have had an overly idealized picture of the Thomas Jeffersons and George Washington's as if they were these flawless, incredible men. Uh, well, today, it's the exact opposite with something like the 1619 Project. You now have something, to make up a word that I think Kevin Young made up, we have uh, hamardiography. That's the word for sin, hamarti- hamartia. And so hamartiography is now we only see the past through the lens of the flaws of the people who came before us. So the only thing that matters about Thomas Jefferson is that he was a slave owner. Like the, the only thing we can see, I don't want to minimize that. I also don't want to, uh, I don't want to ignore kind of historically what's developed and what's happened since then. But it's like the, we went from only seeing them as these like virtuous, flawless individuals to now we only see them by their flaws, by, 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 their, by their sins. And I think that that also, plays into we have a whole nother narrative of how we got to where we are, and it's all based sort of in the idea of white supremacy. We're running low on time, but <laughs> some more thoughts. Um, yeah. Um, man, I don't know. It's
1: We might need to stop because if, <laughs> if I can go on, our whiteness is the problem. I mean,
0: we're, we're the oppressor. Yeah. I mean, so Kevin DeYoung at the last, Together for the Gospel, the very last one ever, uh, he was on a panel about CRT, which is a generally a useful panel, and uh, Kevin DeYoung said just last Sunday… I had a couple come to our church, he's in North Carolina, and he said the couple, said so they came from their, pre- they left their previous church because the church that they ran, their pastor was telling them to repent of their whiteness and to, to divest of their whiteness, to get away from their whiteness. And the, the couple said, listen, they told Kevin Young, we hate real racism. We want nothing to do with ethnic partiality. We hate that. Number two, we do not believe that we are white supremacists. Like that's not something that we're into, we, we, we reject that with all of our hearts, and I don't know what to say when my pastor tells me to repent of this. God made me the way I am. My my skin color, whether white or dark, is the way God made me. I don't want to be ashamed of the fact that God made me white or black or whatever, right? I don't want to be ashamed of that. I don't even know what to do. So the the, the couple left the church and came to Kevin Young's church seeking help. Well, again, you you see the problem. There there is something deeply wrong in the way that the the, the issue of race and racism is being discussed in our country today. Mm -hmm. And in future weeks, we're going to go back and talk about how it got to where it is, and then we want to get into some specifics about how it's affecting society and the church. We want to talk about the call for reparations today, like what are we just supposed to think about reparations, which we don't think is a good idea, but we want to argue biblically why we don't think those are good ways to go on this, and a whole host of other things. Closing comments.
1: Um, yeah, just kind of looking ahead to where we're going, like we mentioned, we, mentioned, we name dropped a bunch. Um, We're going to take our time through, we're going to look at Tim Keller's Generous Justice, we're going to look at Eric Mason's Woke Church, we're going to take time to look at the actual like seminal text, Critical Race Theory, Um, and I mean we're not going to do the the deepest possible dive because that would each one of those would involve its own long series, Um, but we're going to take time to to show um, how these things work out and where they go wrong because we need to see that. We need to see that and Keller and Mason, they, they kind of serve as as paradigms for this, um, test cases, if you will, um, on these issues. And so we're going to look at things like that, look at people like that, um, and, and, and hopefully it'll be clear um, why the, the worldview that's
0: fueling what they're talking about is so bad. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are called to counteract strongholds and arguments that... Uh, stand against the knowledge of Christ and to tear them down and uh, we want to be as clear as we can on a vast and complicated and intricate system of thought that has marxist roots it has all kinds of different roots in the way it has expressing itself in our culture today and God I do pray for clarity on this that people would see what Scripture really teaches versus what people are saying Scripture teaches, and that you would give us, um, again, clarity, uh, a biblical understanding of justice, a biblical understanding of, of ethnicities and uh, the, uh, the idea of ethnic prejudice and how evil that is. And God, I pray that you would also show us a way forward and that we would not compromise, whether at work or at school or with other friends that we have, that we would stick to your word and be truthful and that you would get the glory and that we would have the joy of truly following uh, what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys.